The following message is from LifeSource Christian Church MP3 Audio Lounge. More information about LifeSource is available at lifesource.org.au. I, I read this funny um, article that was sent to a newspaper. And um, how, how many of you are on Twitter? How many of you are on Facebook? How many of you are on Instagram? Yeah, how many of you got got um, 100,000 people following you? Nah? Cool. How many of you have got five people from? <laughs> it's great. But anyway, so, so someone sends this letter to the newspaper. It goes, D, sir, I haven't got a computer, but I was told about Facebook and Twitter, and I'm trying to make friends outside Facebook and Twitter while applying the same principles. Every day, I walk down the street and tell passers-by what I've eaten. how I feel, and what I've done the night before, and what I will do for the rest of the day. I give them pictures of my wife, (laughs) my daughter, my dog, and me gardening and on holidays and spending time by the pool. I also listen to their conversations and tell them what I like about their conversations (laughs) and then give them my opinion on every subject that interests me whether it interests them or not. And it's working. I already have four people following me. Two police officers, a social worker, and a psychiatrist. (laughs) Ah, there you go. That puts it into perspective, doesn't it? Just puts it right there into perspective. You know know they're uh, combining uh, YouTube and Facebook and Twitter into one. You know that? They're calling it you twit face. <laughs> Some of you have heard that before, but anyway. <laughs> okay. If you have your Bibles, let's get spiritual. Open up to Luke, Luke chapter 13. Many people ask God this question. Hey God, what are you going to do for me? And there's so many people approach God, and I suppose, especially new Christians, their approach to God is, God, what can you do for me? Can you give me? Can you do for me? Can you supply for me? I, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, a big focus because God is the protector, the provider, the one who supplies all of our needs according to his riches and glory. And I suppose it's a, it's a big thing for us to ask God, God, what can you do for me? But have you ever thought about Maybe if we turn the question around, hey, God, what do you want from me? What is it that you want from me? Now, what's interesting is that when I was a kid growing up, there was an answer to this question, and the answer to the question was based on me being good. And so the answer to that question, when I was a kid growing up in a very legalistic church, was keep the rules. You know, what does God want from you? Keep the rules. Don't smoke, don't drink, don't swear, and don't hang around with people that do. That was sort of the, the whole mindset. Matter of fact, we would classify a person if they were a Christian when I was a kid growing up on whether they smoked or not. And so you couldn't possibly be a Christian if you smoked. Seriously. And so, you know, we'd be looking, smelling people's breaths and working out whether they were Christian or not. That was the, that was the defining element back when I was a kid. Was that the same in Wales, darling? Similar, yeah. 
And um, then, then now I think there's an opposite extreme. Like that was an extreme based on works and legalism, and that certainly is not what God wants from you to, to operate out of a legalistic system. But I think today the pendulum has swung right the other way. And when people are asked the question, what does God require of you? The answer is nothing. It's all by grace. You know, God, God, it's all by grace. You know, it's like everything, everything that God has done, he's done. And I just sit back and enjoy and, and, and relax and enjoy it all because God has forgiven all of my sins, past, present, and future. It's all done. And uh, can I just put, push pause on there and say, God died for all your sins, past, present, and future, but he only forgives the sins that you've repented of. And so you have potential for all your future sins to be forgiven, but they won't be forgiven unless you repent of them. And so for, for, for you to be taught that all your sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven is half a truth. And if you think for a moment that your future sins are forgiven without repentance, you're wrong. The potential, of course, the blood of Jesus has the potential of, of, of wiping out every single sin, but it's only connected to repentance. It's like eight plus B equals C. So B is already done, the blood of Jesus, but repentance needs to be added to the equation. And what the false grace message does, it removes, it removes from us repentance. And you can't read the Bible without seeing repentance. Matter of fact, when Jesus came preaching, it was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's like repent and you will receive grace. Grace is given to you at repentance. It's A plus B equals C. So let's not leave out the A. Let's not focus only on the A. Let's not focus on the B. Let's not leave out the B. Let's understand that it's an equation that works together. Anyway. Let's press play again. So, so what does God want from me? Well, let's read this parable from uh, Luke chapter 13. And it's a parable about the fig tree. And it's again a parable concerning the kingdom of God. And all of the parables that Jesus preached on were parables that had some teaching that Jesus wanted us to observe about the kingdom of God. Now, I'm doing a series at the moment called God's Culture, and it's a series on the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is God's culture. What does it, what's God's culture like? You know, when, when you come to my home, I hope that you observe my culture. Um, when I come to your home, I want to know your culture because the last thing I want to do is create a cultural faux pas. How many of you know what cultural faux pas are? You create a big cringe factor because you're doing something that's culturally unacceptable. So, so how many of you have got a handkerchief? See, you got a handkerchief? See, that's cool in Western culture. But if you go to Asia, their attitude is, excuse me, why would you put it in your pocket when you... <laughs> Just like you, you know, you, you discard that and you don't put it in your pocket. It's like, it's like crazy. Now, not just you know, understand this that that when when I go overseas, I love observing the different cultures, 
And for me, it's not right or wrong, you know. It's, it's not right or wrong. What someone eats is not right or wrong. I think the other day I talked about what a certain culture ate and someone got offended by it. And for me, it's like, it's not right or wrong. I mean, seriously. It's like whatever, whatever is cool for your culture, as long as it doesn't go against the Bible, it's okay. It's fine. But, but, but we do have cultural cultural issues. I, I, I remember when I was uh, studying in the Philippines, we had a lot of people that never carried handkerchiefs. And so there were lots of colds there. And I'd, I'd go to the library to study, and it was a cacophony. <laughs> it was just, oh, man. After about five minutes, I just could not stand the noises. I could not sound, stand the sucking noises, the... The, the, the gagging noises because I was making a few gagging noises myself after a while and it was just like, I can't handle this. And it's cultural faux pas. You understand that? So what about the kingdom of God? What does God want from us? What's God's culture? What does God expect from us? Because it's one thing what I expect from you. It's another thing what you expect from me. But what about God? What does God expect from you? What's God's culture? What's a big cultural faux pas in God's presence? What causes God to cringe? Are you behaving in such a way that's causing God to cringe? Do you know what causes God to cringe? Because that's what Jesus came to teach us in the whole teaching on the kingdom of God is what's God's culture like? So here it is. Let's read this parable, the parable of the fig tree, Luke chapter 13. He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, look, for three years... I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. Okay. So here's the parable of the fig tree. Kingdom parable about what God's culture is. And here it is. God expects fruit from your life. God expects fruit from your life. I can still remember, it was 1975. We moved from a place in Newcastle called Hamilton to another suburb called Lambton. We had a big move. How many of you got a big move and, and you, you got a lot of stuff and you have to move it? How many of you know that when you move, you look at what you want to keep and what you want to throw away? So it's my dad, 1975, I'm 15, 16 years of age, and I'm looking at my dad, what he wants to keep, what he wants to throw away. Well, one of the strangest things that dad wanted to keep, get hold of this, one of the strangest things that he wanted to keep was his olive tree. He planted it from a seed. And so what my father did, he actually worked for days to dig the root ball out and got a whole bunch of his mates to help him get this huge fig tree. I'm talking, you know, it would have been at least three meters high with a huge root ball that's, that, that fitted on a trailer. He had to take his olive tree with him. <laughs> so we move to Lambton, and so he plants his olive tree in his garden, and then and the, the owners before us were Australians, Anglo-Saxon Australians. 
And um, now, all of a sudden, Italians move into this house. And so, mum's doing the inside of the house. Dad does the outside of the house. And so, first thing he does, gets rid of all the lawn. Ah, <laughs> huh? Gets rid of all the lawn. Then, then he starts attacking the garden. And the previous owners had planted a beautiful garden full of Japanese cherry blossom trees. So dad's got the axe one day. <laughs> and the neighbor comes out, Sam, what are you doing? Sam, what are you doing? He says, I'm, I'm chopping the tree down. Oh, Sam, you've got no idea how expensive this tree is. You've got no idea how valuable this tree is. My dad looks at the neighbor and he says, does it bear fruit? <laughs> neighbor says, no, it's a, it's a Japanese cherry blossom. He says, if I can't eat fruit from it, it's not staying. <laughs> Stand out of the way. <laughs> it was like, that was his culture. That's his mindset. I don't want a tree in my garden taking up space just to be pretty. It's got to produce. In my garden, my culture, if you want to live here, you've got to produce. So all of us are producing, man. <laughs> Otherwise, dad's axe comes out. <laughs> so, so similar story. What's the story here? Here's a tree in a garden. It's a fig tree. What do fig trees produce? Answer? Not this tree. Not this tree. It wasn't producing figs. So the owner comes out and says, Oh, I want some fruit from you. And the fig tree saying, But I'm here looking pretty. Can't you see how pretty I am? Look at my beautiful leaves. Look how healthy I look. Yeah, I've given you health to produce fruit. Yeah, but, but, but I'm here looking pretty. And the owner is saying, I'm not looking for pretty. I'm looking for fruit. So what's Jesus saying here? Are you ready for it? If you're in God's garden, if you're planted in God's garden, God's not looking for pretty. God's looking for fruit. And you will be scrutinized for the fruit that you produce. The leaves will be pulled apart. Come on, where's the fruit? Where's the fruit? There isn't any. It's just pretty. Well, the owner is not interested in pretty. The owner is interested in fruit. So, so here it is. Judgment is coming. It's about being scrutinized. How many of you know how many of you know the parable of the tares and the wheat? Just the tares and the wheat. Okay. This is a parable about scrutiny. On the last days, it's going to be scrutinized. What's going to be scrutinized? What's wheat? What's tares? What's producing good fruit? What's looking pretty, but nothing there? How many of you know the story of the great catch of fish? Another parable. On the last days, there's going to be scrutiny. What's edible? What's inedible? What's good? What's bad? There's going to be scrutiny. And I want for you on that day when you get scrutinized for you to receive the big tick rather than the big flick. Because some of you are going to get the big flick. Some of you are going to get the big tick. And part of my job is to make sure that you get the big tick, not the big flick. That's part of me being your pastor and loving you enough to tell you the truth. So let's move into what God requires of us. Let's look at that. This is scripture in Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. 
It says, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So what does God want from me? Okay, let's, let's, let's get the context right. Because Micah was written to people in rebellion against God and trying to get it right, but not getting it right. And the whole context is, well, what does God want from me? And so a lot of the people, they, they were arguing with God. So is, is this what you want? You want burnt offerings? Is this what you want? You want thousands of rams? Is this what you want? 10,000 rivers of oil? Is this what you want? Child sacrifice? And God responds to that sort of moaning and groaning. No, he has shown you what he wants. This is what he wants for you to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And you know what? That hasn't changed today. Because let, let me just open that up for you. How many of you want me to unpack what this means? Okay. What does God want? Number one, to do what is right. Do what is right. I love doing a word study on do what is right, to do justly, because it actually means to be like a judge. The root meaning of this word is to be like a judge that scrutinizes what's in front of him and has to make a decision based on the facts, and his decision must be justly must be justice. Wouldn't it be awesome if every decision we made, we acted like a judge, scrutinized all the information, put it all together so that we made a just decision. It's not to do what is convenient, but to do what is just. How many of you know that too many people compromise by doing what's convenient rather than what is just? How many of you know that right at the moment, for some of you, it's tax return time and it is a big temptation to do what is convenient. But how many of you know that your integrity is based on doing what is just, not is what is convenient? Too many people that live a low life only do what's convenient. Then you've got people that do what is wrong. And I mean, they are, the, they are really the low life. But doing what's convenient is a big temptation. Well, well you know what? To do what's right is inconvenient. Yes, many times it'll be inconvenient, but your integrity is based not on what's inconvenient, but what is right. Do what is right. Let, let me talk to you a little bit about, about doing what is right for God and grace and how all that fits in. Because there's so much stuff out there that's, that's extreme on grace. I, I'm a grace preacher, believe it or not. I love grace. I love the whole focus on grace. But grace primarily is based on salvation. So this is the deal. You can't earn your salvation. So it doesn't matter what you do, you can't earn it. And, and, this, and this becomes the flip side because there's a lot of teaching out there that talks about salvation by works. And again, this is wrong. You can't get saved by what you do. You can't earn your salvation. It's the free gift of God. But this is where the flip side is, that now that you're saved, you don't now lean upon grace. Now you demonstrate your salvation by what you do. So here it is. Grace applies to salvation. You can't earn it. But grace 
does not apply to, apply to demonstration of salvation. That's where you demonstrate your salvation by what you do. You don't earn your salvation by what you do. You demonstrate your salvation by what you do. So grace applies at salvation, not at demonstration. What a lot of people do is that they switch the thing. They want works at salvation and grace at demonstration. Whereas salvation is by grace, demonstration is by works. And that's what this whole parable about the fig tree is all about. Show me what you got. Now that you have life, show me what you got. Oh, no, I don't have to do anything. You know, I don't have to go to church. I don't have to read my Bible. I don't have to tithe. I don't have to do anything. I'm under grace. Let's see what you got. You got nothing. Chop it down. When you get scrutinized, I don't want the master to say, you got nothing, chop it down. When you get scrutinized, I want the master to see some fruit on your life. You got to demonstrate something. There's something in your life that's got to show that you're saved and your whole nature is changed and everything about you is changed. Do what is right. Love mercy is the second thing. Love mercy. One of the great teachings that Jesus gave about loving mercy is connected to Matthew 6.12, which we call the golden rule. And the golden rule is all about loving others. The golden rule is about doing to others as you would have them do to you. So there's this, there's this flip thing that happens is, how would you like people to treat you? Well, the way you would like treat people to treat you, you treat them. Because that's the true demonstration of mercy. The true demonstration of mercy is, how would you like to be treated? Well, I want to be treated with dignity. We'll show dignity. I want to be treated with respect. We'll show respect. I want to be treated with mercy. We'll show mercy. I want to be treated justly. We'll show justice. I want to be treated fairly. We'll show fairness. It's all connected. But you know what's strange? Is, is that too often we want for ourselves what we don't want to give others. And this is the parable, again, of, of, of the two debtors. One owed a huge debt and the other owed a little debt. And the one who owed a huge debt was happily willing to receive forgiveness of his huge debt, but then found his brother that owed him a little debt but wasn't willing to forgive him his little debt. And it's like, hang on here. You received mercy, but you weren't willing to dispense mercy. And see, this is what kingdom people do. They live by the golden rule. They live by this understanding, that which I receive, I'm willing to give. That which I want, I'm willing to dispense. That which I desire from God, I'm willing to give to others. But you've got no idea what people have done to me. You've got no idea. You've got no idea what you've done to God. Oh, you know, but I did, you know, it was, it was all a mistake. It was all, you know, hey, as far as God's concerned, all sin is sin. And just one sin is enough to separate you from God forever. How many of you know what the sin of Adam and Eve was? The sin of Adam and Eve was eating a piece of fruit. That was the sin of Adam and Eve. One piece of fruit. That's what they ate. And that's what brought this disaster into the world. Not murdering a hundred million people. That wasn't the sin, not ripping off the government. That wasn't the sin, eating one piece of fruit. 
You say, well, well, well that's, that's just ridiculous. I'm eating a piece of fruit. That's nothing. Well, as far as God's concerned, it's everything. So don't put your, don't put your offense into categories. Well, well, you've got no idea what was done to me. Well, God's got a lot of ideas about what you've done to him, and he's willing to forgive you. So are you willing to forgive others? Are you willing to show mercy? Are you willing to demonstrate mercy? And you know what? Sometimes you've got to be put into positions where this is so tested in your life. It is so pushed. You get so pushed into a corner where you don't want to do it. You just want to have revenge. You want to rip someone's throat out. And God says, hey, John, if you want to receive mercy from me, can you give it to others? And you know what? You really don't know until you put it in a position where you've got to demonstrate it, whether you're doing what God wants you to do. Show justice. Love mercy. And then walk humbly with your God. Oh, man, this is so powerful. Walk humbly with your God. I want to say something that will just rock your world. Are you ready for this? I'm going to say something right now that will rock your world. Humility is the key that unlocks the kingdom of God. Humility? You say humility? I thought repentance was the key that unlocked the kingdom of God. Well, do you know what? I've discovered that humility comes before repentance. You can't get to repentance unless you start a humility. How many of you know that a lot of people don't repent because they haven't come to humility? There's too much pride in their life for them to repent. So like, no, no, I'm a good bloke. I, you know, hey, come on. I've never killed anybody. I, you know, and so that's called pride right there because there's no revelation of sin. There's no revelation of, of God's severity that he places on sin. And so, you know, oh, I'm okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, humility leads to repentance. And this is what, this is what um, Micah is saying. You've got to walk humbly before your God. Matter of fact, Jesus actually introduces this in Matthew 18, where he says, unless you become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You've got to become like a child. Like that? No, not like that. It's to be humble like a child. Humility, to become humble, where you just put pride away. How many of you know that God many times actually tests to see your humility, see how humble you are? Do you know what? I can still remember this like it happened the other day. I was, I was pastoring a small church up in the valley, in the Hutter Valley, and I went to preach at a church. And as I went to preach at a church, it, was, it wasn't a wealthy church. There was a lot of, of um, housing commission people that went to this church, people that were not, you know, of high society. They were, you know, just, just blue-collar workers, Lovely people that love the Lord. When I finished preaching, this little kid comes up to me. He might have been maybe 10, 11. Put his hand in his pocket and he pulled out a whole bunch of coins. And those, those were the days of one and two cent coins. How many of you remember the one and two cent coins? And he puts out his hand and he says, this is for you, Pastor John. And, um, and, and my first response was, no, 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 no. 
He says, no, no, this is for you. And you could tell he was straight out of housing commission, you know. This is for you, Pastor John. And I said, no, no, it's fine. I'm okay. No, no, this is for you. You, you touched my heart when you preached, and, and I want you to buy yourself some petrol. <laughs> and I tell you, everything inside of me said, I don't need this money from this kid. And in actual fact, I didn't need the money from this kid. But you know what God spoke to me and said, take the money off the kid. You don't need to take it, but he needs to give it. And so one of the most humbling things that I did was to take the coins, which added up to 16 cents, 16 cents. And I took that. One of the hardest things that I ever did, seriously, was to put those 16 cents into my pocket. And when I put that money into my pocket, God spoke to me so clearly, said, understand this, that every cent that comes into your hand comes out of sacrifice, and you need to treat it with dignity. Oh, my goodness. That put such a fear of God into my life, such a fear of God. It was such a powerful lesson. And praise God to this day, money has never been an issue to me. We've, we've, you talk to the board, you talk to anyone in our church, and you find that money has never been an issue because in that act of humility, God did something deep in my heart. And you know what I've found over the years? You keep it out of your heart, God will keep it in your pocket. Anne and I have been so blessed because we haven't chased it. It's chased us. We haven't chased it, but we live incredibly blessed lives because we've kept it out of our heart. And you know what? When God says, give it away, it's like, absolutely. When God says, be generous, absolutely. It doesn't belong to me. That's called walking humbly before your God. And I find so many people fall over because they're chasing, they're grabbing things that God actually wants to give you if you don't chase it and you don't grab it. What we need to chase and grab is Him. That's what we need to be passionate for is him. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Come on, don't seek the things. Seek the kingdom. That's, that's walking humbly. Here it is in 1 Peter 5, 5. It says, God gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. So you're needing grace, humble yourself. This is where humility is such a powerful thing. And then in 5 verse 6, it says, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you in due time. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you in due time. Here it is here. You humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. There it is. That he might exalt you in due time. See, if you're under the hand of God, then underneath is the other hand. And when you slip yourself under the hand of God, he will exalt you in due time. Folks, I, I, I don't know why people don't get this, but there's no, greater, there's no greater joy in life than to humble yourself into God's presence and then just wait for God to provide all that he provides. Just wait for God because he will exalt you in due time. Humble yourself. Walk in humility. Walk in honor with God. I'm telling you, it's the greatest message you'll ever hear. Humble yourself. 
Humble yourself. Here's four things that God will give to you when you humble yourself. First thing he'll give you is salvation. He will give grace to the humble. Salvation comes to the humble with repentance. Humility leads to repentance that leads to forgiveness. It's such a beautiful thing. It's, it's God's given everything to, to give you salvation, but you've got to humble yourself to receive it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. There's, there's incredible gift and riches there, but you've got to humble yourself to receive it. So you've got to see yourself as the recipient and God as the benefactor. When you see yourself as the needy one, I need. And you know what? When you read Revelation chapter 3, the church of Laodicea, they were judged because they had no need. That was their big problem. You don't see that you're needy, but you're wretched. And God saw you certainly have a need, but you see yourself as rich. You see yourself as full. But in actual fact, you're needy. That's one of the big problems with us is that sometimes we don't see ourselves as needy. But when you see yourself as needy, you're actually humbling yourself and you come to the benefactor with humility, not with demands, but with humility. Humble yourself. Are you getting this? Come on, are you getting this? Because if you're getting it, it'll take you to another level. Second thing that God gives to humble is his nature. I love this, the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, I really believe in the parable of the fig tree. The tender of the garden was the Holy Spirit. Oh, just, just leave it for a year. I'll work on him. I'll work on him. I'll fertilize him. I'll, I'll see if he can produce some fruit. The Holy Spirit's at work in your life, working on you, digging around, trying to fertilize you so that you can produce some fruit. Just let the Holy Spirit do his job. You, you, something's called the fruit of the Spirit comes from the Holy Spirit. How many of you know that the Holy Spirit wants to work in your life don't fight him. Don't grieve him. Don't, don't cast him aside. But work with the Spirit of God. Humble yourself and receive his nature, the nature of the Spirit, and the fruit will work out. Another thing that the Bible, that, that God wants to give the humble is the best life. He wants to give you his best life. And you've got to work this one out. Because if you don't work this out, you will always, you will always be a sucker to the enemy. Because the enemy will always promise you the best life but never deliver it, ever, ever deliver it. He can't deliver it. Why is that? Because the best life belongs in God. I've come to give you life and life more abundantly. Come on, there's too many people that are sucked in to the things of this world that promises everything but delivers nothing. Come on, the best life comes in God. And the fourth thing God gives the humble is his inheritance. You become sons of God. Oh, what a wonderful thing it is to walk through this life as a child of God, an ambassador of Christ, head high, shoulders back. I represent the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. How awesome is that when you walk into a situation? Who are you? No, no, no. I'm a child of God. I represent the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. I've got his nature inside him. I've got the Holy Spirit. I've humbled myself. He's exalted me. He's given me sonship. He's given me a name. He's given me a prize. He's given me a robe. He's given me a place in his kingdom. Come on, I'm a child of God. That's what kingdom people are all about. They don't live for this world. They live for his world. They don't live for the things of this world. They live for the things of his world. Come on. 
On the newsletter, I wrote a little story about two men. Two men that lived across town from each other and both facing the end of their lives. One was very wealthy. He'd amassed a huge fortune, invested in stocks and bonds, lived in a huge house. The other had not amassed a huge fortune, but was a God lover who had a kingdom mindset and had invested in the proclamation of the gospel. The first man, as he lay dying, began moaning, I'm leaving home, I'm leaving home. The second, as he was dying, with a glow on his face, began saying, I'm going home, I'm going home. See, people of the kingdom understand this, that we're pilgrims passing through. Understand this. We might, hear, we might be here 70, 80, 90, 100 years, 110, but we're pilgrims. What's 110 years in the light of eternity? So we're not here to accumulate things. You say, what? I thought we were here to accumulate things. Whatever you accumulate, you can't keep. You can't keep what you accumulate. So the purpose of life is not to accumulate. What's the purpose of To leave a mark for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. To have some fruit, to make some impact, to make a difference. Come on, to make a difference in someone's life. No, no, I'm here to accumulate. I want a big house. I want a big car. I want a big bank account. I want big things. I want, I want, I want, I want. No. Kingdom people say, I want to leave a mark. I want to make a difference in my world. I want to touch people with goodness. Wherever I go, I want there to be the fragrance of God, the fragrance of the kingdom of God. It's not about what I accumulate, but what I leave. What I leave behind in the lives of others. See, that's kingdom people. That's kingdom people. Kingdom people. To enter the kingdom, you've got to humble yourself. You've got to repent of your sins and receive Jesus. Thanks for listening to this message from Life Source Christian Church MP3 Audio Lounge. We invite you to visit us online at lifesource.org.au to find out more about our church and to also access other free resources.